These verses are titled, The Parable of the Prodigal and His Brother. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the, that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to, and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I do love that story. It makes me giggle every time I hear it. <laughs> Our poem today comes from a book entitled The Lives We Actually Have, A Hundred Blessings for Imperfect Days by Kate Bowler and Jessica Ritchie. And this is for when you need a little hope. 
Oh God, these feel like darkening days with little hope to be found. We cry out, where are you, God? And where are your people, the sensible ones who fight for good? Why does the bad always seem to squeeze out all that is good? Oh God, help us in our exhaustion and in our desperation. When we're tempted to throw our hands up and surrender, anchor us in hope. Blessed are we with eyes open to see reality, the sickness and loneliness, the injustice of racial oppression, the unimpeded greed and misuse of power, violence, intimidation, and the use of dominance for its own sake, the mockery of truth and disdain for weakness and worse, the seeming powerlessness of anyone trying to stop it. Blessed are we who are worn out from cynicism that we feel we've earned. We who are running on fumes without the promise of a destination. God, seek us out and find us and lead us to where hope lies, where your peaceable kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hope is an anchor dropped into the future. We feel you pulling us toward it once again. So people have already asked me what I mean by nuns and duns for a sermon title, and it always makes me happy when you don't know what I'm talking about. So there you go. In the book that Adam Hamilton wrote, just entitled Luke, the Outcast Outlaws, and there's another word, but I can't remember. It starts with the, I don't know. It's another word that starts with O, but... He talks about nuns and duns, about people who are not involved with any church and never have been because they see church people as being somewhat insincere. They see them as being holier than thou. They see them as being difficult and judgmental. And so they, when it comes to church, they say, I'm having none of it. So those are the nuns. And the duns are people who've been around church and a little disillusioned because the people are judgmental and they're holier than thou and all of the above, and so they're done with church. And those of us who are left spend very little time thinking about, worrying about, seeking out the nuns and the duns. Because we're good just as we are, right? We've got it all together. And is, what was that? Huh. <laughs> so it's very difficult for us to really look at what it means to be part of a community of faith, to really be welcoming and affirming, to really be the love of Christ in the world. It's not an easy task. 
When I was in seminary, I did a course that was called Congregational Studies, and it was one of the most fun things I ever did. It was a summer class, and we went to a church that was in a small town that had been there forever and ever and ever, and looked through a lot of their old records, and the best place to find out what's been going on in a church is to read the women's group's minutes. And so they, they had all these elaborate minutes, and they told a story of a new pastor who had come in and had started, you know, like the, the end of June, and went looking into like a garage or a back shed and found this wonderful pot and said, that would look great, planted with flowers. And so he dragged the pot out and put it in front of the church and planted it with geraniums, and everybody thought it was beautiful except for the ladies who said, that is the bean pot. <laughs> and that has been the bean pot forever. Who told you you could plant flowers in the bean Needless to say, his pastorate was somewhat short-lived. But in reading further in those minutes, that church had dinners, and the people in the church that were in charge of the dinners would assign people jobs. And if you were new, you might get to wash pans. Now, in my experience as a pastor, whenever there's church dinners, I always wash pans for the very same reason that I iron. In this work, there is very little instant gratification. You take a big pan that has had mashed potatoes in it, and it looks terrible, and you clean it, and it's clean. Instant gratification, thank you, Jesus. And so that's why I wash pans. But it isn't the best job to be given. So we found that as people moved through years of service to the ladies' group in the church, these go back to when it was WSCS, everybody remember that? They would move up the line, and you would go from washing the pans to washing plates to serving coffee to cutting the meat. But when you reached green beans, and you were serving green beans, you were part of the in-crowd. And it was important to be able to serve green beans. Every church I've ever served suffers from green bean syndrome. Because you're not going to let the new person come in and do something as important as green beans. You don't know if you can trust them. What if they put three scoops of beans instead of two? How would we deal with that? The first church I served did a roast beef dinner twice a year, spring and fall. And they had a lovely kitchen that had Double, triple sinks, because at that time you had wash, rinse, and sanitize. 
and they had a nice big hole here with a garbage can underneath it, so you could scrape plates in that. But over on the other side, there was another hole where you could put a garbage can under that. And so somebody came in and was given the task of washing dishes. And they had always done the dishes here, set it up so that the dishes would be over here to be dried. That person happened to be left-handed. And for her, it made sense to go this way. So she switched it around. And the kitchen witch, you can use your own changes of those things, Sylvia came in and said, that's not how we do dishes here. And she said, well, what difference does it make? We always do the dishes from this side across to here. And she said, I'm left-handed. It makes more sense for me to do it this way. And the woman said, well, that's not how we do it. And she starts moving everything back around. So she packed up her stuff and walked out the door and said, you can do it yourself. We get stuck as church people in the way things need to be and don't even see reality anymore. You don't see what is in front of you. You see what you'd like to see in front of you. You see things from a very, very skewed position. We are people of habit, and we do things the same way because that's what's comfortable. And I have not heard the stories about when you put a drum set in the front of the church, but I can only imagine that there were a few people who were very upset about that. And I was a member of a church where one of the biggest givers in the church left because they put a screen up front. What happens when we deal with change and how we deal with change and how we live with consequences of our stubbornness are very important. We look at this story of the prodigal son, and I wonder if I were the parent, if I wouldn't have sat down with the younger boy and said, what, are you, what do you really want? What is it you're bristling against? What's the problem that you need to get away from? A younger son in that particular culture didn't necessarily have a future. He knew that the land was going to go to his older brother. He knew that he was always going to be the leftover. That he was always going to be on the outside. Generally speaking, in the Middle Ages, first son was the inheritance person, second son became a priest. Gave the family status. Wow, my family's really got a lot of status. So, but the idea that he wanted to go someplace else doesn't strike me as being terribly odd. The economy of the day also doesn't strike me as being very odd. It wasn't uncommon that there would be famines. 
These were people that relied upon the land to provide their food. There was a lot of desert, very little rain. You have a time where there's no rain, you've got no food. The fact that this young man got a job feeding pigs, and we can only assume that he was a good Jew, that would have been like the lowest of the low, the worst job in the world. And yet he knew that his father took care of their hired help. And he was willing to humble himself to go to that dad and say, you don't owe me anything. I just want to come home. The other brother, the older brother, the people who've been sitting in the pews for 45 years, the people who've always been there, who have always had access to God, have always had everything they want, he was mad. Why should you welcome him back? For crying out loud, what's wrong with you, Dad? He left, he took your money, he spent it, and now he's back? What does he want now? And that's just how church people treat a newcomer or somebody who's been missing for five years and shows up. Do we greet people warmly? Or do we step back and say, we'll see how they behave. We'll see if they can measure up to our standards. We make a huge mistake when we don't welcome people warmly. And I would say on a scale of one to 10, you're probably about a seven and a half, which isn't bad. But for a lot of you, this is the only time you see your church friends, is on Sunday morning. Think about that for a minute. The only time you see your church friends is on Sunday morning. So are they friends or are they acquaintances? But when we come together, we have to be looking for the person that's standing alone off to the side. Now, I'm very, very comfortable in a church that I'm serving. This is my milieu, if you will. This is where I am most comfortable. But when I go to another church as a worshiper, I'm the person standing off to the side waiting for somebody to say hello. And do you know how many churches I've visited where I stand off to the side and that one person speaks to me? I'll even give them three chances. And if they don't speak to me in three times, I write them off. Now I attended an Episcopal church, High Episcopal church, smells and bells the whole nine yards, and I really enjoyed it. But nobody spoke to me. And I did have a friend who attended that church. And when I saw him someplace else, he said, I thought you were going to come back to Grace Church. And I said, you're the only person that spoke to me. And he said, well, that's Episcopalians. 
And I said, well, Episcopalians might need a kick in the butt because that's not a good excuse that they're Episcopalians. So you don't want to be, well, we, we don't want people to come here. You don't want to put up this sign that says you're only welcome if we know who you are. When we talk about outcasts, when we talk about the people that we don't think belong, those are the people that need to be here. Those are the people that Jesus reached out to. Jesus was criticized, lots, for reaching out to women, to those people who were considered sinners, tax collectors, how many IRS agents do we have here? And would we welcome somebody that we consider to be oppressive? How do we treat people? And what's the litmus test? Jesus didn't ask. Jesus saw people where they were and embraced them as who they were. I'm thoroughly enjoying this book. I love Adam Hamilton anyway, but the way he points out how Jesus was always reaching out to the lesser known people. And the Pharisees, who were so stuck in the rules, who wanted to be sure everybody followed the law, didn't leave any room for love to grow. There was no room for love because the law didn't allow for that. And then the Sadducees, you know about Sadducees, they didn't believe in heaven. And that's why they were sad, you see. It plays once in every church. <laughs> But they were all stuck in the rules. And Jesus came to say, wait a minute. Love is more important than the rules. Love and kindness are what counts. The bishop saw something here that we need to embrace. I put that in my blurb in the e-weekly and I'm thinking I'm going to have to pound on that a little bit for you that when the bishop comes in and says I would worship here every Sunday if I wasn't the bishop if I didn't have to be other places he said this church has spirit what are you going to do with that what do you think you can do with that particular assessment of who you are. You can ignore it. But she saw something that we don't see in ourselves because we get caught up in all of the diddly-poo. And there's a lot of diddly-poo in church. A lot. So look at the reality. You are loving people. You have outstanding music, outstanding music, cross genres, 
which is unusual. You do powerful ministry. I'm really sad to see the folks from Family Promise leave today because I've gotten a little attached to them. I like the fact that they're here for two weeks because we partner up with First Church and we do one week and they do the next, so they're here. And I've had some wonderful conversations with these folks. And you want to know what? They're just like you and me. They're people. They're not homeless people. They are people. We have to embrace who we are and then embrace whose we are. May it be so. Amen. Amen.